You're listening to 94.1 KPFA, Berkeley 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, K248BR 97.5 in Santa Cruz, or on the web at kpfa.org. The time is 7.01 p.m. Up next, Full Circle. Stay with us. Welcome to Full Circle, your cultural affairs radio magazine, produced by members of the First Voice Media Apprenticeship Program. Tonight's show is all about the arts, music, film, and dance. We will also be giving away tickets for one of the artists featured on the show, and you will hear the voices of some of our newest members of the Full Circle family. I'm your host, Audio Desperado Ephraim Colbert. Keep it locked on 94.1 FM KPFA. Welcome to Full Circle on KPFA. Our first artist featured on tonight's show is Fantastical Carpe. I first met Carpe at a benefit bringing awareness to equitable practices for restaurant workers. At the benefit, he performed one of his hit songs, Acapella. Not only is Carpe a talented musician and producer, he is also interested in social issues that affect the community. Here is my sit-down with Carpe. Bay Area audience, this is Audio Desperado Ephraim Colbert. And I have the pleasure of sitting down today with Fantastical Carpe. Fantastical Carpe is a Bay Area native musician working in the artistry of emceeing and producing music. He was also featured recently in a SF Chronicle front page, I believe, article on his work within the restaurant industry. Carpe, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm really good. Good. So maybe give us a little bit of your background. I grew up in Oakland. I grew up in West Oakland for a little while. Moved out to Richmond and then uh, met a few friends out there, some lifelong friends that I still communicate with, that I still work with in music. Then I moved back out to the east, out to East Oakland. I would say back in high school, music kind of just started calling me. In senior year, that's where I found my multimedia academy, SLAM Academy, the San Leandro Academy for Multimedia. At first, I was really into the visuals as far as like video and editing video, 3D modeling, 3D animation. But sound was always just natural, very intuitive. I can just separate each sound within a mix. It was like I can hear the drums and just separate that and only hear that. I can hear the guitar and only hear that. So once I found the beats, yeah, and yeah, once I discovered the beats, that was a game changer because it was just, everything was so clear and I could just, it was almost like hearing everything in HD for the first time. So I just kept taking it further and further, one step at a time, one mixtape at a time, one song at a time. 
the production got better. The production got clearer. Um, the raps got better, more intricate, developed. And I just, now I'm here. I'm ready to transition into the big league now. I do everything myself, produce the, the, the tracks. Love to sample, so I sample everything from rock to soul to classic. Anything I can find my hands on that I can say that sparks an interest in me. And you talk on a large variety of different topics. Every, there's something in your music for everybody. And you were recently featured in, I believe, the front cover of SF Chronicle earlier this year. Yeah, yeah. And your experiences within the restaurant industry, is that correct? Yep, yep. The Restaurant Opportunity Center, their goal is to improve wages and working conditions for restaurant workers. When I got involved with the ROC, I was dealing with that job that they spoke on. I was just so, I remember when they walked in, too, how miserable I felt at that misery-inducing job. And it was almost like like a sign from God that I should. Because I saw the poster walking around before I even met the ROC. And I was like, ah, oh, maybe I should try to get some more skills, bartending, eh, maybe. But when they walked in, that's when it became clear this is what I, I need to do as far as the next step. And they introduced me to the SF Chronicle. He came in, took pictures at the job that the ROC got me, the new job that they got me there, too, as well. And you did bring a couple of songs with you today. Maybe we should go over the songs of the listeners before we play them. First track I have here is Over Me. And uh, what was the inspiration for Over Me? I had sampled the Beatles come together. The energy from that track was just so raw that I had to come up with some some raw lyrics to express that or express the visuals that I saw when I heard the beat for the first time. It, it was just amazing. I don't I don't know, just the, the visuals that just popped up in my head. I really, really had to, to struggle with this one and take months and months to write. I wrote it a few years ago, released it a few years ago, but it's something I still perform, that I still play, and I still get a reaction from. A wide demographic of people. I mean, like, uh, older white people have told me that they love that piece, as well as younger black people my age told me that they love that piece. And, yeah, that's actually one of my favorite songs, and I'm glad we're going to start with that one. Excellent. Well, let's go ahead and take a listen. Come one, come all, come together, come now, come correct, come collect, come forever, bring it to your recollection, come and swirl me. If you ain't ready, I display it to you early. Like a PG-13 to a prepubescent teen, never knew this with his jeans when you keep it from the fiends. You trying to give it up, but you need to make a buck ends meet. No judgment, you caught up in the scene. One thing I can tell you, it's no accident. Who are you? I'm F. Carpe, I majored in blackness. The real truth is, we used to get a... Whip, forgot about that shit. I'm here to tape your glasses It's the nerd, protecting all the pockets On my higher learner when I space lease rocket Unify and occupy, reject the polytopics This don't plan, you bitches can't stop it Welcome back, this is Ido Desperado Sitting with Fantastical Carpe we just played one of his hit songs, Over Me. We do have two more songs that you have brought in for us today. So the next song I have on here is Strong Survivor. So what is the story behind Strong Survivor? Usually my songs, they always start with the samples. And that one, it was a song by Jerry Butler. It was called uh, Only the Strong Survive. And 
I sometimes I try to capture a little bit of the the essence of the song that I did sample. So only the strong survive, and then I thought about my experiences growing up in Oakland, and I was like strong survivor, and I was like, hmm, that that has a nice ring to it as well, and, and it relates to me and my friends' experiences growing up too. Um, everything from parents being on drugs to landlords raising the rents and it just touches on a little bit of everything but it's a little bit lighter harder this is strong survivor car pay what it is run it down huh we only got strong survivors on my keep it real Although it's kind of off topic To that girl to keep poking me on Facebook Let's hope for real Now keep it pushing Kind of like the pushers on my block I don't kick the push out Instead I mock I do the same thing But invest in stocks It's time to teach my About these drips I cop I, I, I couldn't make it on the radio What you sad for? I ain't sad, no What it do? Me mug till it run the throw I'ma hold these Till I'm under growth Yep I grew up in the O, catch a little knee high, side sick of mode, little knee high outside, trying to get a dollar from the folks. They were selling, I didn't know. Oh, when you're young and naive, it don't matter. That summer, I saved 103. I counted every dollar that I gave to my mom. For those of you who just tuned in, I am sitting with Fantastical Carpe. We're going over a couple of songs that he brought into the studio with us today. Now, the next song we have on here is titled Inside My. What's the inspiration behind Inside My? I sampled many Rippertons inside my love, and man, it just the the beginning of it was just so amazing. How and actually, I heard that J Cole he actually sampled the same song just recently off his new album. And I was like, oh, that that sounds so familiar. Like, what is that sample? That's at the end of the song that I sampled. I sampled wow. the beginning. He sampled the end. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it always starts with the sample inside my love. This one, the visuals. It just made made sense to take it from a reflective type of standpoint, like just just thinking about things, just observing and reflecting on those things. I can tell by speaking with you that there's a lot of thought taken into each song that you work on and yeah, each song that you produce. Most definitely. And I also enjoy that during our conversation, you're, you're giving a shout out to who helped you inspire with behind the beat making of the songs. That's great, you know? Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. So with that being said, this is Inside Mine. I'm another in a different state, striving for the butter on my dinner plate. Couldn't prepare me for the every other, every cold world, every different day. I'm working for a way out, make my scared man can't gamble. So I roll life, both eyes, I roll twice. I took aggressive a minute, lost nine lives before I left in the district. Then I ask why I feel low, like a bum when he picking up a cigarette hat. Take it in my own hands. Stressing for my long day I just split it into better halves Then remember what the soul say Okay, that was Inside My by Fantastical Carpe Where do you see your, your artistry going in 
where you see yourself going as far as uh, addressing social justice issues? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to continue to address social justice issues, especially since the ROC, the Restaurant Opportunity Center, has provided so many opportunities. I feel like I, sh- I should write a restaurant piece for the ROC because they've helped out so much and it keeps coming up, too. I'm like, oh, I don't have a restaurant piece, but I have something <laughs> kind of similar to to restaurants. So quick shout out to my website. It's going to if you want if you like what you're hearing and you uh, you want to find more. It's on fcarpe.com. That's F-C-A-R-P-E. Dot com. You can go there, just listen for free, become a fan. You can. There's also a tip jar at the top of the website where you can donate if you want to help out financially. But really, I just want you to listen mainly. And yeah, man, Carpe, thank you so much for joining us today and for spending some time with us. Maybe let's give out your website one more time for our audience. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. That's fcarpe.com. That's F-C-A-R-P-E.com. That's F-C-A-R-P-E.com. RPE.com is a place for a star like me. I said F-C-A-R-P-E.com. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Welcome back to Full Circle here on 94.1 KPFA. For those of you just tuning in, we played my interview with Oakland artist Fantastical Carpe. We only had time for a small teaser of his songs, Over Me, Strong Survivor, and Inside My. To hear the full tracks, visit our website at kpfaapprentice.org. And also check out Carpe's personal website at fcarpe.com. We're going to take a quick music break featuring Soul Mechanics recorded live right here in KPFA by the Full Circle team back in 2012. Soul Mechanics is also our ticket giveaway for the evening. We have two tickets available for their show this Sunday at Yoshi's in Oakland. You'll have to stay tuned to know when to call. After the break, one of our new apprentices, Mari, will step in the studio with me to discuss our interview with filmmaker Larisha Cotton. Here's Soul Mechanics with I'll Stay. Welcome back. You're listening to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA. I'm audio desperado Ephraim Colbert, and I have in the studio with me Mari. Mari is one of our newest members of Full Circle. Welcome, Mari. How are you doing? I'm doing well. You and I had the pleasure of speaking with Larisha Cotton. Can you tell our audience a little bit about who Larisha is? Larisha is a documentarian. She describes herself as sort of an activist documentarian because she wants to affect um, public policy through media. And she was originally based in D.C., and she moved recently to San Francisco. And how did you feel about the overall experience? I thought it went great. Going into it not knowing a lot about her, she was 
really open to sharing. She was really thoughtful. And um, I really enjoyed hearing her describe her process and also her sort of her ethics as being a documentarian. It was nice to know that she didn't just go into it, say, as an artist, but she was thinking about the political angle and her personal politics as well. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us. And with that being said, let's take a listen. This is Audio Desperado Ephraim Colbert, and I am in the studio with new apprentice Mari, as well as Larisha Cotton. Hi, Larisha. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, Larisha, you are a filmmaker, correct? I am. I do mostly documentary stuff, but I'm now a little bit tapping into writing for fiction. For our audience, tell us a little bit about yourself and where you are from. Yeah. So I am an East Coast gal. I am originally from Baltimore, had a small stint in Missouri or Missouri or Misery, depending on where you're from. And then I went back to D.C. and I was there for six years, worked for the government. And then I quickly became to realize, does media affect public policy or is public policy affected by media? And I was really interested in that. And so I went to grad school and studied documentary filmmaking, and then I find myself out here in San Francisco. Kind of touched on what drew you to filmmaking, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about what made you notice that media affects public policy and in what ways and maybe what kinds of media specifically. Yeah, so I think growing up I saw it of my parents always watched The West Wing, and then they would talk about what was happening in those series. And then as an adult... Specifically in grad school, I was studying Russian politics. And uh, as we may know, they're really into propaganda over there. And so I was looking at the Soviet time and their news outlets. And then with documentary stuff, you see real life people and they're talking about issues that you normally wouldn't go deep into because a lot of the times you see something then it's, you know, like radio or television broadcasting, you only get, you know, 20 seconds to a couple minutes and so to go deep and to learn these characters. That's how I got involved in that. I was in grad school and I was really focused on media with broadcasting and social media with news. And I went to George Washington University and you have to pick a professional specialization. And my options were business, education, and security policy. And I wasn't really interested in any of those. So I go up to the dean at GW and I was like, hey, I just think, you know, media is kind of where it's at of affecting people's minds. He's like, well, why don't you make a documentary about it? And I took that kind of as, you know, like a dare. And I said, so if I make a documentary or find a program, you'll apply that and I can make my degree into that. And he's like, yeah. And so that's what happened. And then I fell in love with it. So it was really kind of me being sassy. Yeah, and a little entrepreneurial. And I was yeah. wondering, because you sort of, you're doing your own thing, right? You have a website. Mm-hmm. And how do you then find projects? Do you reach out to people? Do they find you? You know, and so I like to say you have to create momentum out of moments. So you just go and you meet people, and then if you find a story, it's really all about character. So the first part is like finding that story, or secondly, you can talk to other documentarians and collaborate with them. So for me, right now, being in San Francisco, I just moved here five months ago, and it takes for documentary, you have to really know a network in order to tap into that. So now I have met a couple people through Friends of Friends, and we're starting to do pre-production on a couple of things. So it's really just going out and meeting people. And it could be at a jazz club. It could be at a conference. It could be waiting at BART. You just never know. Do you have any funny stories of meeting people and thinking immediately, I want to do a story about you? Any characters? 
Not yet, but I joke. I If I put out my phone, I have all of these like on my notes app, all of these random stories. So if I see in the local paper store, I'll write that down, a tweet, and then later I'll flesh it out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, my last one in D.C., I can use this as an example. I went to go see a comedian, the person I was dating at the time. He's like, hey, my friend is doing this like open mic night. We should go to it and just support him. So I was like, sure, we'll, we'll do that. I'll support local people. And we go and sit down, and he's from Milwaukee, and is actually an ESPN broadcaster or producer. And he is Muslim, and he's an immigrant. And his whole skit was on Islamophobia. And I was laughing at it. And then halfway through, I'm like, I shouldn't be laughing at it this this is really messed up and so it just got me thinking you could use comedy and a lot of people use comedy to talk about deep issues and why not make a documentary about that because if you already like being on stage you're going to like being in front of a camera because you're not scared of that and that's for a lot of people with documentary work they hate to be in front of the camera during their worst times and document you have to be there at all times in order to really capture a person so i figured i would do that that's interesting because those are two, sort of two different forms of media. You have documentary and then comedy show that are mm-hmm. addressing social issues, but you need almost one to be able to get the message out about the other. Almost like your yeah. documentary. Is that um, the Monus and Ozzy? Was that the yes? That was were, the one. Yeah. Yeah, we watched mm-hmm. that one actually, yeah. and um, we were we were wondering um, us as a group if you could tell us what made you want to help that duo get their story out and give them sort of more of a spotlight. Yeah, so in comedy, in order to go and watch them, you have to like, like comedy. Like my parents, are, I love them, but they would not go to a comedy club. But they'll watch a film. Yeah, and so that was what was getting me thinking. And a lot of times when you hear, think of comedians, some people think, oh, they're only raunchy. They're not going to talk about real issues. And that's somewhat true, but maybe not, right? And Monas and I, they have such a deep friendship. To film about Monas being a comedian, but it's really about friendship and or you could go deeper but it's really about being an immigrant in america and muslim and what that means i really appreciate ozzy's feedback because he's super honest he has like an eye for originality and voice and um he enjoys comedy himself we're we're very close friends so i felt like it was safe space for me to share what i had been working on but it wasn't until seven months later that I actually got on stage for the first time. I was always told I could be anything I ever wanted to be. But as a Muslim American, I know there's one thing that I definitely can't be, and that's a guns rights activist. <laughs> Monish has, like, dreams of Madison Square. Every single joke I think that we've ever written has started with, like, a question that, like, you know, we can't answer. So we bring up these things that really may piss us off in the beginning, but we try to dissect these situations. You gotta have all your hierarchy of needs met if you're taking your dog to the dog show. People of color, we ain't got throwaway money like that. That's a whole next level of money. Like, you got dog show money, bro? Is that right? Like, when we got dog show money, when we got dog show money, like, when Arabs got Arab money, they got cheetahs in the Lambo riding shotgun. It's like, how much money do you have to have to participate in this dog show? And so, so the phrase dog show money came about. And I'm wondering, so you, you have a, all these different scenes in that film. You have some that look like even Snapchat videos of performances. Mm-hmm. You have some that you're in their living room for. You have some you're just 
I think eating out with Mm -hmm. them how do you you know get so comfortable with your subject how do you you know I guess put together those kinds of pieces people have to want to talk to you and they don't want to feel like they're being drilled at and just saying like hey I you know I just want to follow you and follow your story and you it sounds silly but we had to plan out okay how can we spend time with these characters and if you talk to any person that's doing documentary work there's going to be tons of post-it notes in their room or like a random document it's just like whatever you can write so you're thinking okay let's eat with them because when you're eating and just randomly chat about life you can go to a bar um we hung out a couple like yeah a saturday with them at their nice you know apartment in georgetown my style of documentary filmmaking in cinema verte is just being a fly on the wall and just capturing. So some people really rely heavily on interviews, which is fine, or the voice of God, which is like a narrator across it. But I do my style of I want my characters to tell the story and I don't really have to. And how do you navigate being still being the person who's putting all the pieces together, being the producer and everything and setting up the situations? How do you still sort of keep this authenticity of the characters telling their own stories. You have to ask the right questions. And you want questions that are open-ended, that can kind of lead into them, or put them in situations where they're going to do something that will move the story along. So, of course, we had to be there when he had a stand-up routine. But we can't go, because there's only so many open mic nights that Monas, you know, could do. So that's when you have to go into the historical part of, like, going on YouTube or seeing what they've recorded in the past. And a lot of times with documentary work, you're just getting as much information as you can pre to, A, formulate your story and see where it has where it has been and where it's going to go. And then to structure that and to cut things when you're making a film, because so much of what you actually film doesn't make it in. Mm-hmm similar to radio yeah yeah (laughs) in many ways yeah so you've talked a little about addressing public policy or using Mm -hmm. media to change to affect public policy and we noticed some of your pieces or a good amount address social issues like a comedian Mm -hmm. talking about political issues social issues then we noticed you also had one about special needs education and keeping that in school so I'm wondering how you feel about activism in documentaries. Do you consider yourself an activist documentarian? I do. When people ask me what type of documentaries do you make, I normally say social justice, but I think this is better, activism. Mm -hmm. Because people need to have a face, a name, a character to a policy issue because it's very easy to say, oh, this is generalization. You know, we're not going to have special needs kids in our schools. But then if you don't know a special needs kid, then it's like, oh, actually, that affects their family and everything else. So it just gives people a more full picture of what someone's life could be if X policy were to happen or to not happen. Mm -hmm. A good documentarian is always going to talk about two sides of a story. Mm -hmm. Now, it could be 80%, you know, the side they want you to know, and then 20% of what the other side is saying. But I would challenge if a documentarian doesn't show both of those sides and they're not doing a good job, then they're being like propagandists. Yeah, does it ever happen where you're working on a project and you get to a point where you realize that you've been covering it from one angle and there's another angle that changes everything you've already <laughs> created? Luckily, I haven't encountered that yet just because I do so much research beforehand and that could just be like my master's degree that I've always been ingrained to do that. What has happened is your character, because you can't control people or situations, the character decides to not do something or a court decision goes in the like against your favor. And then, um, so like for Leaving Sharp, for instance, 
we found out about two weeks into filming that they weren't going to win. And Leaving Sharp was the one about the special, special needs. needs education. Yeah. And so we still have all this production time. So you can't be like, well, I guess we're not going to film the rest of this time because you've already started. So then it is, okay, let's, even though our climax has happened two weeks in and we have four to six, week, four to six weeks left, we'll just capture that B-roll or afterwards or maybe get those moments. It wasn't my intention to adopt all these kids, but I've always looked out for the kids that nobody else would have thought about taking. Very challenging if you look at her as a disability. I look at her like she just like everybody else. want people when they see your film to feel something and then ultimately to a lot of times to act on it and maybe that action is just thinking about something differently maybe that action is calling your congressman maybe it is reaching out to someone that you know is a wheelchair and is your neighbor and just asking them how their day is humanizing them so that's and every person that has seen that film has felt a feeling afterwards where can people check out more of your work yeah so if you go to my website which is LarishaCotton.com. For the two films, I'll plug those. If you just search Leaving Sharp into YouTube, it will show up in Vimeo. And I believe the same with Monas and Ozzy. Well, thank you so much for being a part of our very special artist show with uh, Full Circle. We'd love to have you on the show again sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. Larisha uses her artistic platform to not only share with us people's stories, but to address deeper social and political issues. We will have a link to Larisha's website and Vimeo where you can watch the full documentaries, Monas and Ozzy, and her award-winning documentary, Leaving Sharpay. That was new apprentice Mari and I's interview with documentarian Larisha Cotton. Welcome to the team, Mari. We look forward to hearing more great content from you in the future. Up next, we will hear my interview with talented dancer Miranda Berry on modern dance, Gaga, and her transition into becoming a professional dancer. This is Audio Desperado Ephraim Colbert, and I have the pleasure of speaking with Miranda. Hello, Miranda. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. And Miranda, you are a dancer, correct? Yeah, that's true. I'm a just-starting-out professional dancer. What dance backgrounds are you familiar with, or dance expressions are you familiar with? Yeah, so quite a few. I'd say mostly I kind of came up in the modern community specifically studying release technique, which I'll explain in a sec. I had studied ballet when I was a really young kid, and I loved it a lot, but it got to the point where I would have to sacrifice, you know, a daily high school experience and either be homeschooled or have way restricted education to continue on at that level. So I sort of switched to modern, and that's really been my true my true dance love, release technique specifically, and then I've also gone abroad to study in Jerusalem, and I was studying experiential improvisation that's known as Gaga. It's a movement language. Gaga, the movement language. I feel like I've been familiar with that term, or I've heard that term before. Is Gaga also a touring dance company? Yeah, it's it's the name of the the training style for the company Batsheva. 
which is Ohad uh, and Hiram's company. And they study exclusively in Gaga, which is basically a form of dance training where you're responding to sensory prompts and cues. And it teaches you to move creatively through unlocking your senses. Is this dance technique in any way related to the Mr. Gaga film? Yeah, that... yeah. It's very much related. Wow. <laughs> it's that it's the exact subject matter of how Oha developed this technique and then, you know, how it informed his artistic choices as he was growing up as an artist and choreographer. Wow. I believe it premiered last year in Sundance, but it's playing in theaters right now in 2017. Yeah, it's about to come here. So if you do get a chance, be sure to check out Mr. Gaga or at least check out the trailer. That is amazing that you learned that technique. Yeah, it was, I was really, really privileged to be able to do it. Um, I took a program called Dance Jerusalem, where I was studying with members of the Batsheva company. And it was honestly kind of otherworldly to be able to learn from them and to be able to, you know, to have such an immersive experience in that technique. Wow, I'm really impressed, you know, because <laughs> I mean, I met you just by walking into the neighborhood restaurant and you said you were a dancer, you know, I but I've never really met someone that has had experiences with such a well-known professional style. Yeah, it's exciting. Honestly, I feel really lucky to have received that training. Yeah, I use it every day. There's all kinds of techniques within Gaga. And by the way, it's it's a pretty accepting style. There's a branch called Gaga Dancers. It's for professional dancers, and they have sort of more of an emphasis on dance technique through a Gaga lens and a sensory lens. But then there's also a branch called Gaga People. It's funny that they phrase it like that, but it's essentially for everyone. There's classes all the time. You should come to a class. Are the classes taking place in the Bay Area? Mm-hmm. I don't remember the specific studio, but I know the teacher. It's James Graham. And I believe you can just look it up online. But there's plenty of Gaga workshops that come here, as well as the regular class that I think is on Tuesday nights in the city. So for those of you listening in, check out Gaga, taught by James Graham, and Tuesday nights in San Francisco. You were also saying that there was another type of movement that you were familiar with. Right. A release technique which is actually like a bunch of different techniques sort of clumped into one. It's a dance style that emerged in the modern world around, I want to say the 90s or 2000s, probably the 90s. A lot of dance forms are very muscularly based. So release technique, actually, you know, you're using your muscles, but it's based in the skeletal structure of the body and in exploiting certain factors of physics that are already present in order to generate movement that's just as explosive and just as dramatic as movements that you could attain only using your muscles. So I'm talking about gravity. I'm talking about momentum. I'm talking about the natural spirals that are within our skeletal structure. So release technique teaches you how to use all of that to propel your motion. And because of that, it's a really awesome technique for those who are returning to dance or who are recovering from injuries. It's also a style that I'm delighted to say you can really practice until you age. Whereas a lot of other dance styles have that sort of cap age. You know, you you can't, it's really difficult to be a professional ballet dancer past a certain age, which honestly can be like 24, 25. I think the oldest professional dancer that I ever saw live was Muriel Mafre, and she was 40 
and it was it was seen as ancient, you know? But that's pretty wild to have gone through a complete training for your career and then at 40 or at 30 or 25 have to turn it all around. That's why so many dancers get into body work or into other sort of therapeutic modalities as they age because they need to pick up a second career. Very true. It, it, there is a time limit in different styles of dance. So Miranda, did you always know you wanted to be a dancer growing up or is it something that you found later in your life or as you were on your dance journey, you just discovered that this is what you definitely wanted to do? Is there a discovery or is it just something that comes natural to you? Yeah, I love to talk about that. I definitely was dancing a lot from the time that I was a kid. I mean, there's there's actually like home videos of me dancing up a storm. I was always very drawn to movement. I was a really active kid. I went to a college where we didn't have a dance major or a minor. So from, you know, from that time in my life, I was not choosing it as a high priority. But I think it was after a couple years of college that I really started to notice that my my well-being as a person was so affected by how much I was prioritizing dance in my life. So it ha- it wasn't until, you know, the past two years that I really started to own that desire. And I knew it was important to me when I started to dance. I was aware that it really fed my soul. But I think I kind of got lost along the way when I really started to think about career options, what to do. I think to some extent, I didn't think that dance was a viable career option. And I know that's true for a lot of artists that to pursue that as your career is kind of dissuaded in our society. My family was always really supportive, but I think honestly it was just an internal struggle of do I want to commit to this? Am I able to commit to this? Do I have what it takes? I didn't think I wanted to be a dancer. I realized that I wouldn't be able to live a full life if I did not continually practice dance. So it's not so much the identity of I'm a dancer as much as I need to practice dance. And I don't think I'm going to feel healthy in my life or in my future if I, if I abandon that practice. So that was the real shift. And that's incredible. I don't know if my experience really relates to yours, but what comes to mind for me is just the feeling that you receive after working on a piece for so long, being able to present it to a larger audience, and there's almost this euphoria that you go through when you are on a stage. Do you feel the same euphoria when you're on stage? Yeah, I, I love performing, but I actually don't think I do my best dancing and performing. I'm I'm pretty process-based. I, I love working in depth with a group of people and rehearsing a piece and really getting, getting deeply into the corners of it. And I'd say performance is really fun and fulfilling because you get to show all that hard work and you get to expose, you know, you get to shed light on those deep, dark corners of movement language that you've developed with your crew of dancers. But I can sometimes lose my head a bit. (laughs) It's always so different than you think it's going to be. I never once have had a performance where I was able to really accurately predict what it was going to feel like to, to show a piece live. That's why live performance art is so cool. It's, it's always going to be different. Yeah, it's always going to be different. I like what you said about enjoying the process. I feel like a lot of times people don't enjoy the process. You know, they, they want to rush to the results instead of taking their time to develop. I think you'll even be happier with the end result if you enjoy the steps of going through it. 
Yeah, it's it's really a journey. I agree with you. And I also think that that's that's important on an individual level, but at the same time, on a societal level, you know, we live in a capitalist society and it's very results-based. It's very product-based. So something that I've struggled a little bit with over the past year-ish that I've been entering this world is how do I feel about making this passion of mine a means of income? It's kind of a fraught question. I don't know if you've ever experienced that or thought of that, but it's very interesting just assigning worth or assigning value to something that feels immeasurably valuable. And also it doesn't feel like a limited resource that it makes sense to price out in that way since dance is so much about shared experience, at least for me. Welcome back to Full Circle on 94.1 KPFA. That was my interview with Miranda Berry. We covered different dance techniques, the challenges of performing live, and her journey to becoming a professional dancer. Miranda is currently performing in Berlin. She'll be back later this summer where you can catch her in dance spaces across the Bay. We ended the interview with Miranda questioning, how do you assign value to shared experiences and the arts? Coming up with a dollar amount, I'm sure, is quite difficult for artists of all mediums to do. To all the artists out there, thank you for sharing your talents with us. Up next, we're going to take a quick music break featuring Motorhead with their track Dance. And you know what? Now seems like a good time to give away the Soul Mechanics tickets. We'll take caller number 5 for a pair of tickets to Soul Mechanics at Yoshi's this Sunday. The number to call is 510-848-4425. Again, that number is 510-848-4425. After the break, new apprentice Louise will step in the studio with me to discuss our interview with Grail of Soul Mechanics. Welcome back to Full Circle. This is Otto Desperado, and right now I'm in the studio with Luis. Luis, you're with our new group here at Full Circle, Group 43. That is correct. And you and I had the pleasure of sitting down with a member of Soul Mechanics, right? Yes, we did. We spoke to Grail. Grail is one of the founding members of Soul Mechanics. How did you feel that interview went for you? I think it went well. Uh, We did some research, uh, looked up his music, looked up the group. They seem very diverse. Their music is very different from what I'm used to. We spoke about generational music. I came from the 50s experience, harmonizing R&B, rock and roll. There's an infusion of jazz, R&B, and funk in his music. Well, thanks so much for sharing that with us, Louise. And let's go ahead and take a listen to our interview with Grail from Soul Mechanics. (laughs) 
Bay Area audience. This is Audio Desperado Ephraim Colbert, and I'm in the studio today with new apprentice Luis and Grell from the Soul Mechanics. Grell, thank you for coming to the show today. Thanks for having me on the show. Audio Desperado. Thank you, brother. Uh, really grateful to be here. I also want to thank Mickey Mays for everything she does at KPFA and just all of her work. I've known her for years, and she's one of the greatest people I know. And KPFA is one of the greatest stations, so really happy to be here talking on this fluffy microphone. So tell us a little bit about your group. I have seen them live, but for those who aren't aware of who you guys are, can you elaborate a little bit about your group? Soul Mechanics, we're basically a soul and funk cover band. We started out in 2012. I decided that I wanted to start playing a certain way. It's hard to describe, really, but it's this, is that I had an epiphany, and I said, okay, what I need to do to get where I want to be is I need to play a volume. And what playing a volume means is you play loud, basically. And, you know, an, an example would be Jimi Hendrix. The way that Jimi Hendrix got a lot of his sounds, obviously one of the greatest guitar players ever lived, but the way he got his sounds, some of them you can't even get until unless you're playing at a certain volume. So I, I decided, and Jimi Hendrix is a huge influence on me, so I decided the first thing to do, I didn't have any great plan, and I didn't say, hey, I'm going to start a band. But I said, you know, one thing I need to start with to find my voice on my instrument is to play a volume. Jimi Hendrix did that, and there's things that I don't even know about as far as how I like myself to sound that I won't know until I play at a certain volume. You can't even know what those sounds are. It's it's that. And it sounds kind of abstract, but literally that's where the band started. So I got together with these two cats, drummer and bass player, Weldon, Weldon Hall on bass, and we started Soul Mechanics. It was a trio in the beginning. Really, we didn't say, hey, we're going to start a band. We just started playing at Perry's and Fairfax, and we played loud, and we just did the, We did our thing, man. We did whatever we wanted, quite frankly, for about two or three hours. <laughs> and that meant like five-minute guitar solos, things like that. It was pretty wild. So this was back in 2011. Then about 2012, that evolved into the current structure of the band, we got a break, got this gig at Rosella's in the back room in May 2012. And I hooked up with this brother, David Goodlett, my guitar teacher. He knew a lot of cats around the bay. And, and I had the concept of, hey, I got a show. I want to do this type of music. I would like to put together a lineup. I didn't think about an eight piece, but working with David, he and I ended up with this eight piece. And we hit Rosella's 2012 with the eight piece. That's where the band was born. Earlier, we were listening to some of your music, and it, to me, it was a little bit R&B, a little bit of jazz, and a little bit of funk. How would you describe your your music? Um, I'd say it's a little bit of R&B, a little bit of jazz, and a little bit of funk. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding, bro. You know, that's pretty much right. Very astute observation, I would say, Luis. To answer your question, we play black music. The reason why we play black music, not that you asked me that, but the reason why we play black music and the reason why I say black music is because that's what it is. First of all, jazz, let's take a step back. That's the only art form this country has ever created, mm -hmm. period. So a thousand years from now, when people talk about America, they're going to talk about jazz. They may not talk about some of the presidents. I'm just saying, jazz is an incredible creation, and it's black music. And so we need to give credit where it's due, I think, with music um, to all the creators of all the different genres in all the corners of the world, and one of those is black music, and we need to stop acting like someone else created this stuff. That's our thing, is we really, really have a deep, deep love 
for music in general and we specialize in black music and when I say black music it makes a sound other than what it is but it really is music created by African Americans I'm not talking about African music I'm talking about black music African American music and that encapsulates jazz blues rock and roll reggae African music hip-hop of course but you know hip-hop came directly from the African drum there was two places where music began in the world as I understand it and that was in India and in Africa the first drums that were ever hit were probably one of those two places so if that is where music came from to not acknowledge that is uh, a, a great disservice to, to all of music you know you asked an interesting question for us because it is kind of the whole identity of the band, which is a desire to celebrate black music in all of its forms. If it doesn't have soul, I'm not really interested in it. Soul, to me, is authenticity. So that's your answer. For me, when I listen to music, I rarely put on a new song. I usually put on a song from the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or what have you, and I'd say 90% of what I listen to is old music. How is the your audience that you play to react and receive that old genre? <laughs> That's a really good question. My experience has been that not every show, but occasionally we there's some incre incredible magic that happens, and it has to do with the material and it has to do with the vibe. I mean, that's kind of what we are. We're a vibe band. I've seen things I never thought I would see with my eyes from playing music. And just joy in people, joy in myself. Music is truly all that matters in my life. And the reason is, is because there's nothing like it, you know. And the music, when you, t when you start doing like some Rick James, <laughs> if you go into the Fillmore, like to, well, we used to play at Rosella's for quite some time before they closed. And uh, there was times where, you know, there'd be a packed house in there and uh, we'd play a particular song and it's the right group of people, the right song, and the people playing that song correctly. And when that all happens, I don't know, it's really hard to, that's why I do what I do, that right there. You mentioned the band and the members of your band. Can you talk about the makeup of the band and who, who they are and what do they bring to the group and to the music? Sure, I'd love to. There's a few people that have contributed an invaluable part of what the band is. One of those people is Luke Frank. I mean, he's the first person I really have to say my gratitude toward as the lead vocalist of the band. He's the, <laughs> Luke Frank is like my, uh, the band would not exist without that brother. Another dude that the band would not exist without is Vernon Hall. That's the bass player that um, I spent a lot of time kind of the band evolving. He played a major part in that. Vernon and I kind of have gone different directions musically and hopefully that circle will will come full circle once again because i mean the dude is in it he's one of the greatest musicians i've i've ever played with being able to work with him has been invaluable also i need to give a shout out to my brother david goodlett david goodlett is kind of the architect uh with myself of the band what you see the band show up as now uh it started off as a concept of hey you know we're gonna have a we're going to do a big band, an A-piece, and the reason why it's going to be an A-piece is we want three vocals. 
I think the band is special because we, you know, we really go out of our way when we do big shows to have a lineup, a front line of three vocalists. We'll have that at all our big shows. And so generally the lineup's going to be three vocals, drums, bass, keyboards, two guitars. And if I got horn money, there's going to be some horns in there. Each generation in each period of the 50s, the 60s, 70s, there was a period in time in history and there was a certain message that was being conveyed. We're now in, in the 21st century. What is your message as opposed to the 50s and the 60s, the soul, the, the, the hip-hop, the harmonizing, and the R&B? What is the message that you convey through your music in the 21st century, 2017? I used to be somewhat of an, more of an activist, I guess you could say, back about 2004. So I did a lot of voter registration. I participated in the National Hip Hop Political Convention. I met some, some of the most incredible people I've ever met. And I was really political at that time. Now, my political activism is n no less present. I just do it differently. And my political activism is playing soul music. And the concept and answer to your question is I decided, you know, instead of registering people to vote for somebody that may not even be elected, you know, I mean, or for someone I didn't even really believe in, you know, but it was better than the other person. So I did that, and it didn't work out in my mind. You know, I got results I didn't like. So I decided if I'm going to put my energy into something, it's got to be something where I know what the payoff is, and that, that really is, is playing music. What it does is it, it depoliticizes the environment, and all that is there are, is a group of people of, of all kinds of races and ethnicities and sexes and everything and whatever, man. You know what I'm saying? Like, just people. And we're all in a room together, and we're all on the same page of what we're doing. And we've all found some, some bit of way to make ourselves whole again in those two to three hours, which is usually our average gig. Wow. And yeah, I, I, I would have to agree with you. People don't tend to think of the arts as a way of bringing attention to larger issues. But I've seen it used in the different art forms that I have been involved in, whether it was art installations, music, or dance, that it's, in my opinion, the preferred way to engage in those spaces over the more traditional attending a town hall meeting. And because it brings people together, like your music, it brings people together. And you're having a show coming up, correct? Yes, sir. We are. It's our biggest show of the year. We're at Yoshi's on June 25th, and that's a Sunday at 9 o'clock, and we'll be doing about an hour and a half set. I'm really excited about this show. It's, I think it's going to be the best show we've ever done. I hope people come out to see this show. I really do, and I'm not just trying to sell it. I want everyone to come to this show. I really do want to sh sell out the show, and I want it to be a huge success, but I want that of every show I do. This particular show, though, the way it's come together and who's involved and the music that we're going to do, I cannot tell you guys what songs we're going to do because it's confidential, but I can tell you that I think it's one of the strongest shows that we've been able to put together. I've been excited about this for a couple of weeks now. Just kind of like, you know, all we got to do is make sure that people show up and see this. It's not do we have to do anything to make sure it's going to be a great show. 
Where can people hear more of your music to get pumped about the show before attending on the 25th? Definitely on Facebook, of course, and that's, that's Soul Mechanics with an X. No C, no S. And then we're also on Reverb Nation. Feel free to hit me on Facebook. That's Grail Swartz, G-R-A-A-L. My last name is Swartz, S-W-A-R-T-Z. Well, Grail, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon on our special art program for Full Circle, and we definitely look forward to attending your event on the 25th. Again, that is at Yoshi's in Oakland, June 25th, 2017, 21 and up. Nine o'clock. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. That was New Apprentice Luis and I's interview with Grell, founding member of the band Soul Mechanics. We hope to see you all at the show this Sunday. Shouts out to our Ticket Giveaway winner. And thank you all for listening to our show this evening. To hear full tracks, see video, and links to all our artists on today's show, visit kpfaapprentice.org. The executive producer for Full Circle is Miss M. Our technical director is Free Will and Frank Sterling. Joy Moore is our production consultant. And I've been your host, Audio Desperado Ephraim Colbert. Up next is La Onda Baita.